Welcome to the Next Wave Radio Hour from WERU Community Radio, a program featuring folks around their 20s and 30s from across Maine. I'm your host, Pepin Middlehauser, and I use he, him pronouns. In this show, I hope to provide you with unique perspectives of life from the next generation working to create the future they hope to see. First in this episode, I talk to a climate activist and birder in southern Maine over a slightly spotty phone connection. If you could start with, you know, who you are and your preferred pronouns. Yeah, so my name is Anna Siegel. Uh, I am a 16-year-old student, climate justice activist, and birder, um, and my pronouns are she, her. So I grew up uh, in Maine, in Yarmouth, Maine, uh, and I've gone to school in Portland for the last three years as a high schooler at Wayne High School. I got into birding really early on in life. I've always been obsessed with animals. That's been my main passion ever since I was really small. And I got involved in birding through uh, adult mentors who kind of saw my interest in animals and you know, referred me to groups like the Maine Young Birders Club or gave me binoculars. Um, and then through my time outdoors, I just really discovered my love for birds along with other uh, wildlife. And I got into climate in a very similar way. And when I say into climate, I mean into climate activism um, because of adult mentors who, you know, saw a drive I had to take care of the world, but I didn't know how. I was very scared when I was younger about everything I was reading and all the science that was coming out, Uh, especially when I was in late middle school in 2018. There was um, the October report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is famously known as the 10 years report because it told us we have until 2030 to fix things or else. I don't like to be a doom and gloom activist because I believe in the value of positive messaging, but you can't ignore the science of that report around, you know, 10 years or all hope lost was essentially the messaging around we can't burst certain climatic effects uh, and we, we couldn't take any measures past that point that would fix what had damage had occurred. And that was incredibly frightening. Uh, that was a frightening read for me uh, as a seventh grader. And from my love for birds and animals and, you know, teachers who kind of pointed me in the direction of climate organizations, I started doing activism work uh, to figure out how I could alleviate the eco-anxiety and also hopefully make an impact on the world. Pre-pandemic, I was a strikes and events organizer where I was spending a lot of time coordinating global climate strikes. Uh, it's not meant you know, coalition building, I'm working with partners and trying to turn out as many people as possible to demand certain things. And I am a big believer in intentional activism. So if you have an event or a rally, there's a goal and strategies and tactics should support that goal. And there should be a tangible result from any sort of intentional gathering. And so with that belief, uh, a lot of the rallies were organized around the demand of climate emergency having certain municipalities declare climate emergency, saying that they would reduce emissions uh, by a certain point by 2030. And that climate emergency through the efforts of youth, uh, not just myself, but many other amazing youth in Maine for climate justice, this great coalition, uh, were passed around Maine. And so through the 
global climate strike in September 2019. Uh, there, we passed um, climate the declaration in Portland, in South Portland. Later, myself and other many climate justice folks, along with Stocko Middle Schoolers, passed one in Stocko. Uh, most recently, I worked with Yarmouth High Schoolers to pass one in Yarmouth. And there's many more across the state, and there's this great group in Bar Harbor that passed one a few years ago. And so I started with that kind of work, client emergency strikes and a lot of coordination and coalition building, because 2019 was also when the coalition made use of climate justice formed, and I was a founding member of that group. But something I do really want to emphasize is how incredibly collaborative uh, climate work is. You know, I really appreciate groups like the National Resources Council of Maine, who award young people with rookie awards, which are awards for youth doing important environmental work. But at the same time, it's so hard to pick leaders in the climate movement because it is truly a movement made up of so many individuals all trying their hardest in whatever capacity they can to make these differences. So but once the pandemic hit, I, like many other people, was out of a job in the sense that we couldn't gather and do strikes. But unlike others, I don't rely on my climate work <laughs> for income. But, um, and so I was able to shift to a different sort of volunteer work, and I got more engaged in grassroots advocacy, legislation, and electoral work. So I've done, since the pandemic, I've done some work on electing climate champions, uh, volunteering with Sierra Club Maine to identify climate champions and help get them elected in government. Um, I've done some great work on climate policy, working with Maine Youth for Climate Justice, and uh, Maine Youth Action. And Maine Youth Action is an organization that I co-founded with other, two other amazing people, Cole Cochrane and Margaret Archibald. I'm the campaign director of Maine Youth Action and Cole Cochrane is legislative director. And with those folks and many, many other volunteers, we've done some work on climate policy. Um, Maine Youth Action has written some policy. We are, you know, we have priority bills and we work with a lot of other adult ally and youth groups to pass policy. And an example of um, the kind of work we do is with Meaning for Climate Justice, uh, there is a Youth Day of Action being organized at the State House in April. Those happen every year. And then we're also uh, organizing a campaign, Meaning for Action is with a bunch of adult allies around a piece of policy called the Pine Tree Amendment, which is a super important climate justice bill. I'm curious if you can speak to being a, a young person in this work. You know, there's a lot of, like you said, there's a lot of really amazing young climate activists and all, all kinds of, you know, social uh, justice workers of all ages. But but being young and, you know, being a person of an age who the climate specifically is going to impact people around your age the most. Mm -hmm. um, what sort of stigma do you run into? What issues do you run into with that, you know, being um, taken seriously and things like that? I think often it can be challenging for youth to be taken seriously in these more adult decision-making spaces because they have always been told it's not spaces for them. And so it's hard for them to take themselves seriously and kind of step up and take those leadership positions. I think it's very important for adults and mentors to make it very explicit that youth are welcome spaces. So then not only will others, will adults take the youth seriously, but then young people know that they belong and that they feel comfortable because nothing is worse than feeling like you don't belong somewhere and that a space is not meant for you. Uh, some folks who are doing some really good work around this are with um, 
is called the Youth on Boards Action on Climate. And it's a group that is seeking to mentor young people on how to be effective board board uh, members and leaders, and ed- how to educate boards of like you know businesses or town councils or uh, nonprofit organizations, educating boards on how they can welcome youth into those spaces and into those decision making tables. And so that's a great example of the work to facilitate making that connection easier. Uh, because intergenerational collaboration is so essential. Like I said, the client movement needs everyone, and that means people of all ages. So it definitely has work to be done in order to make those connections. But I really believe that youth and adults collaborating uh, is only a good thing. Um, it just has to be done in a way that is respectful to both parties and make sure that everyone feels like there's a space for them. I'm also curious if you can speak to the state of Maine and growing up here and working here and living here, how you feel about the state in general, if this is a place you want to stay and do work, if you want to, if you know, if you eventually want to move on to other places. I think so much of my identity is centered around Maine because I've lived here my whole life. Uh, I feel like sometimes when I go to other places like summer camp in a different state, I'm just like the walking Mainer, like that is me. And I talk about Maine so much. Uh, and people will always, you know, joke about, you know, Anna, the, the main girl, um, because that is how I present myself when I'm in other scenarios. But really that sense of identity around me comes from my love of the outdoors, the woods, the ocean, hiking, fishing, skiing. Mainers have such a unique opportunity to be outdoors in so many different ways and have these connections. And I'm so grateful for that. And that's part of the reason I work on climate. But it's also part of the reason why I actually do want to leave Maine a little bit and explore and see if I can foster that sense of connection with other places and if it's different and what that looks like for other people. So I think I definitely want to go to college not in the state because I do want to learn, grow, and explore in other areas. But also as someone who wants to go into ornithology, which is the study of birds, so much bird research happens in the neotropics. So in a Central and South America. And so I definitely want to spend more time in rainforests and neotropical environments, uh, speaking Spanish and studying birds because those are the areas where uh, bird abundance and diversity is most plentiful. People ask me all the time why birds. I don't have a great answer for that. I've heard it a lot from other bird scientists or great nature writers who will write things like, you know, the reason I love birds is because they connect the world to wingtip to wingtip, or I love birds because they represent freedom. I don't have a good why that's very eloquent. They're just birds. There's not much, you know, it's it's hard for me to to verbalize sometimes why I find it so appealing. But it's it's all aspects of it, too. uh, Birding can be seen as a very competitive thing. You know, it's almost viewed as a sport trying to check off all the species. There's some of that that I'm into. But it's also the science and the behavior, like the habits of different species, their physiology and uh, evolution is very intriguing to me as well in linking that idea to climate. What I really want to study when I'm older is how birds have evolved over time in the past and how they will continue to do so in response to climate. And how can we best modify conservation and climate policy in order to make it so that birds can survive in a world, whether or not they can adapt to it. So, uh, that's sometimes called a conservation ornithologist or a climate adaptation ecologist. That's really what I want to go into. 
with with some with some politics sprinkled in. I think my policy nerd brain would never really go away. I, I think I'm always kind of meant to be an activist a little bit. I joke about that with my parents a lot, that if it wasn't climate, it would be something, you know, there's probably something I would be working on because I definitely feel that need to be fighting and working on a project all the time. But that's that's definitely the kind of ornithology I want to go into. And I've had some great opportunity to be involved with it a little bit. There's a great study called the 30-Year Bird Project that looks at how um, logging in the northern woods affects bird abundance and diversity uh, in those commercial forests. And I spent some time um, gathering data there with undergraduate and graduate students just for a week a few summers ago. And then later on, one of the principal investigators of the study invited me to be the outreach for the project. So I've had some great uh, experience doing science communications for them. And it's been an amazing glimpse into the future I want to have, which is, you know, studying how an environmental uh, industry impacts birds and then hopefully influencing uh, decisions around that industry to best support birds and people, the people who rely on that industry, which is the environmental justice part. So the 30-Year Bird Project is a great example of the work I want to do. And I'm very grateful to the people who invited me on to that project. Is there anything else that hasn't come up yet that's really important to you? I think I think it's just really important for people to understand what special mean is, especially as a young person. It is such a privilege to grow up here because it's such an amazing place. And not only is there a gratitude to come from that, there's also it's good to understand the consequences and effects for for folks who can't, like people who don't have access to the outdoors, which is often marginalized communities uh, because of the way that, you know, certain communities have been relegated to more urban, denser neighborhoods and so on and so forth. And that's where these ideas of climate justice come in, where it's not just about decarbonizing as fast as possible. It's about decarbonizing while making sure that this is a world that is equitable and just for everyone. And I think that that's like another layer that goes with, you know, climate work that is really important to understand, uh, not not just for young people, but also for everyone who is engaging in the climate space. And that's, you know, something that I think should really be taught in schools, along with, you know, climate science, is that almost more social studies side of climate justice and what that means, because it really intersects with everything. Racial justice, gender justice, everything else is climate justice and vice versa which is really interesting to tease out when thinking about systems. But the other thing I wanted to mention is um, going from the theoretical to the tangible, uh, the a great piece of policy that a lot of folks have been working on over the past few years is the Pine Tree Amendment. And the Pine Tree Amendment is um, would be a constitutional amendment to the Maine Constitution that would ensure that all Mainers have the right to a clean and healthy environment for generations to come. So essentially, it would place the right to a healthy environment in the Bill of Rights, the main constitution, and make it as fundamental as our right to vote, which is super, super important because we have the right to a lot of things. We actually don't have the right to clean air and clean water. And because of that main identity I was talking about, like that main identity of, of hiking and seeing and being outside, we want to preserve that connection to the land for generations following us and for folks now, especially as the climate crisis worsens and we see increasingly erratic uh, temperatures. But, you know, no person in Maine 
should have to question their right to a clean and healthy environment. You know, that should be defined constitutionally so that we have another tool to protect both the environment and ourselves in relation to it. So I just wanted to mention that because it's a super cool piece of policy that was in the legislature last year and it's back this year. And I'm really hoping that it gets passed through the work of a lot of organizers and I'm also involved in, in organizing for it. I'm curious if at this point in your life, if there's anything that you've learned that personally, going back, you know, five years or more, you could tell yourself back then that you didn't know that would help you. Something you've learned about how to function in the world or anything like that, that might have helped you back then. Hmm. I'm just thinking because that, that, that's really profound, you know, what would you what would you tell the younger self uh, about the world and how to go through it? And there's a lot of things, a lot of things that I would say, and, you know, just because hindsight is 2020. I mean, apart from warning about the pandemic, <laughs> which, which started when I was in eighth grade and now I'm a junior in high school, which is crazy. Um, apart from warning about that, I would definitely talk about myself and to other youth about how things are scary you know like the world can seem scary and like you know we always talk about the news and doom scrolling and that sort of thing but there's ways that you can manage that through um being, you know being careful about what media you consume and uh and, and getting involved in things that you care about and really pursuing your passions because birding for me is part of the way that i connect with the environment without constantly being stressed about it and climate activism is a way that i you know work to make the world a better place and not feel like that everything's kind of burning down. But then there's also, you know, I don't actually read climate media. I don't read climate news. Apart from the basic science that I need to educate others or to talk eloquently about policy, you know, for my own mental health, I stay away from some of that stuff. And that's totally okay. And so I think there's different ways for everyone in order to manage um, either eco-anxiety or just general stress about the world. But I think that a lot of youth deal with that. And a good way to to, to deal with it is, is, to, is to kind of just connect with your passions, you know, like birding or poetry or drawing, all the different things that I do, and find a way to, to have those passions uh, alleviate that anxiety, whether that's by, you know, escaping into them or using them to make a change that was a lot of words salad <laughs> but that no that's great it's a it's a kind of a tricky thing to think about because there's the the added piece of uh everything that one experiences throughout one's life is what makes you who you are now so it's hard to hard to wrap your mind around something like that without thinking about it as like you know having regrets for what's happened exactly Exactly. And I think a lot of people think about regrets. And I often think about regrets, but things I wish I had done. But to a certain degree, you can only move forward apart from learning from the past. Uh, but also, I really do think that it's important to look at the past. Like a great example is I really believe in model-based organizing, looking at what was successful in the past and then using those models again. There's no need to reinvent the wheel. Either using those models again or adjusting them for whatever you're working on. That's why I do a lot of mentoring. Like if recently folks have reached out to me and said, hey, we want to do Earth Day strikes. We know that you have organized strikes in the past. Can we talk with you about how that went or how do you declare a crime emergency? 
And I think that's super valuable. And I really appreciate when folks reach out about those sorts of things because, you know, no one should have to figure out certain how to how to put together a rally from scratch if those things already exist or have already been done successfully in other places. So I really appreciate um, and value learning from in the past and moving forward with those new models to use for further success. You just heard from Anna Siegel, a climate activist, birder, and young person in Southern Maine. My name is Pepin Middlehauser, and you're listening to the Next Wave Radio Hour from WERU. I had the opportunity to chat with my next guest while she was home taking care of her sick three-year-old. Uh, my name is Megan Metzger. I use she, her pronouns. I live in Pownall, Maine, and I currently work as the Director of Development and Membership for the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association, um, which most folks know as MOSCA. Um, I am a transplant. I'm originally from the Midwest. I was born in St. Louis, and then we moved to Peoria, Illinois, where I lived until I was 12, and then we moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, where I went through high school. Um, but sort of through that whole time, Northern Michigan, Northwestern Michigan has been a constant, um, in my family's life, uh, going to this really incredible spot in the summer, uh, called Crystal Lake, which is right near Sleeping Dunes, uh, National Lakeshore. And so Michigan has sort of always been considered the, the constant home for me, uh, no matter where I was kind of going to school. But I came out to Maine for college. Um, I was lucky to have a really great public high school that I went to in Grand Rapids. And I had it in my head that I wanted to head out east for college to see a different part of the country. And both of my parents had originally gone out east for college. They grew up in Iowa. So that was sort of just uh, in my head something that I, I wanted to do. And we did the traditional, you know, college trips where we visited a billion different campuses. And I really didn't see myself fitting in at any of the different spots where we visited. And then it was my senior year that I was working with my guidance counselor and she recommended looking at Bates based on the things I was interested in and sort of the, the vibe I was looking for. I really didn't want a Greek life. Um, having moved in the middle of seventh grade, I really didn't want any uh, barriers to forming a, a group of friends and, you know, feeling additional pressure around that. Sorry, just a pause for my three-year-old. It's okay. Oh, gosh. Yes. So my guidance counselor had me uh, look at Bates, and I really hadn't looked at any of the schools in Maine yet. We had sort of stopped at Massachusetts on our tours, and we took one more trip out and as soon as I stepped on the campus, it really felt like home. Uh, I finally saw a place where it felt like I would fit in and find friends and uh, be able to do all the things that I was interested in. So uh, applied early decision and ended up coming out to, to Maine. And I was one of like five kids from the Midwest uh, when I started Bates. Now, now there's a lot more... Uh, geographical diversity um i know because i later worked there but um it was it was a great experience so i majored in 
French and I thought I was going to major in psychology when I started, but came to discover that that really wasn't for me and uh, loved the French language. And so made that my major and uh, did an honors thesis, which was an incredible experience. Uh, studied abroad in, in Paris uh, for a year, which was wonderful. I, you know, in hindsight, wish I had challenged myself more to go to a Francophone, uh, another French speaking country, but it kind of was what I needed at that time. And uh, was pretty transformative in sort of the person that I ended up becoming. Um, and so graduated and <laughs> as I was leading up to graduation, started thinking about what was going to come next, as so many do. It was 2007, so we were heading into the recession. I had always felt that I wanted an additional degree um, beyond college and so started looking at master's programs I also knew myself well enough that if I stopped school and doing homework, I would have a really hard time getting back into that rhythm. So started looking at master's programs and uh, the other sort of thread through my life is that I've played violin and piano since I was very young um, and played with the Bates College Orchestra my whole time and choir orchestra and chamber groups and, but didn't really didn't want to be a professional musician because I hate practicing, which, you know, is kind of a, a requirement if you're going to be doing music as your career, but wanted to be surrounded by the arts. So started looking at arts administration master's programs, so sort of supporting the arts from behind the scenes and uh, went to Boston University for their master's in arts administration. And it was there that I I was trying to figure out what exactly I was going to do and started learning about marketing or development and fundraising and really found that I had a knack for, uh, I knew that I was a good writer. So, you know, grant, grant writing was a really good fit, but then also just the relationship piece. I've always loved getting to know people and um, sort of helping connect people to things they love and so fundraising seems like a really good fit. And it was interesting because my mom did the exact same thing. She went to an arts administration course and was a fundraiser for many years, which is not what I thought I would end up doing. Uh, but, but here we are, um, having made that my career so far. I'm curious if there was any, you know, it's pretty expected for, for people coming out of high school to go straight into college or maybe take one year off, you know, that's becoming more common. But was there any question about that trajectory for you of going straight to college and, and that being an important thing for you or an important thing for your family or something, anything like that? Yeah. For, for college, it was um, always kind of assumed that from high school, it would just be college next. And that's, both an incredibly privileged position um, to have grown up with. And also, you know, I think I just didn't have the awareness about all the different tracks that can take. Um, so having, you know, with, with both of my parents, having been through four-year colleges and then uh, master's for my mom and my dad is, uh, has retired, but was a doctor. So, you know, there's been a lot of schooling on that side. Um, and also just growing up with stories from 
my mom's mom, my grandma, who started college but had to be pulled out uh, during the Great Depression to help her dad in his pharmacy out in California, and how her whole life she had wished that she had been able to finish that. It was sort of this great unresolved thing that she really carried the the grief of not having that opportunity. And so I think that was really instilled in me in that this was a thing I wanted to do and was important um, to, to experience. But what, what is your feeling about Maine? You know, college brought you here um, and you, you stayed, you, you <laughs> seem to like it here. And is there any feeling you have about what keeps you here? What is important to you about this state? If you're going to stay all of that. Yeah. Um, so college brought me to Maine. I, my four years, well, three main years, one year abroad, but my years here were mainly spent in Lewiston and on campus, um, sort of with some trips here and there. I didn't have a car when I was at college. And so I don't feel like I really got to discover that much of Maine when I was a student. Um, I think in a lot of ways that's changing now, which I really appreciate. But after I then moved away, so I moved to Boston, I moved to Washington, D.C., uh, where I, uh, my husband and I uh, got married, and we then moved abroad. So we, uh, after working sort of some really high-stress jobs in D.C., we decided we wanted to run away and try something else. And so we entered, I entered as a candidate in international school job searches and ended up finding a development job at an international school called King's Academy in Jordan. And so we went, signed a two-year contract and went and lived in Jordan for, uh, ended up being two and a half years and sort of traveled the world and had that really incredible experience as a, as a, as a way to live somewhere else and experience different cultures and languages. Obviously a, a passion of mine is um, somewhere who say French, but, you know, really being able to, to live somewhere else. But then when we were thinking about coming back to the States, ultimately there were a few different spots we were considering and Maine really called to us. My husband grew up in Massachusetts, but heading up to Maine for a summer camp. And I had loved my, my college experience. And, and Maine also reminded me a lot of Northwestern Michigan in many, many ways. Um, and so we sort of gravitated towards that. And then there was the, the right job at the right time open for me at, at Bates College. And so we headed back and decided to, to put our roots down here. So we've now lived in Pownell for six years and we have a three-year-old daughter and are really pretty invested in, in making Maine our home. A lot of that is because access to the outdoors is really huge and the community that we've formed um, one thing that I really love about Maine is sort of its independence in thinking. I mean, there's, it's tough to pigeonhole Maine into any given mindset or, or approach. And I think overall, there's a really heavy emphasis on appreciation of the environment and the natural world around us. And that's something that's really important to me. So we also have really enjoyed just the more casual style of living um that's certainly than dc <laughs> but 
but you know that that folks it's not about outward posturing or presentation a lot of it just becomes about the the relationships you make and that's you know Maine has has lots of challenges as do many any any state <laughs> but that's that's what I've really come to love about about the state I'm curious if you could talk about you know you you settled down you have a family what have been the you know the decision making going into that was that ever a, a question of how you would do that how you would start a family if that was really important to you and also struggles associated with that you know the good parts the bad parts all of that yeah so we mike and i uh were married oh gosh i think it's now 13 years ago it's going to be 13 years ago this year and so we were married in our mid-20s and had no intention at that point of uh, starting a family yet. We were in D.C. at that time and just really wanted to explore and not that you can't do that with kids, obviously, but, you know, really wanted to live that life together. And so it actually was 10 years before we really started um, thinking about starting a family. For us, it was for a long time, it was an if, not a when. And as we got into our 30s, started to have more serious conversations about whether if we didn't have um, try for uh, starting a family, would we regret it? Um, what would that life look like? What would it look like with a child? And so ultimately made the decision um, to start a family. And I'm very fortunate. I have a lot of, a lot of friends who have suffered um, with infertility treatments and losses. And I think it's really important to talk about how normal that is tragically. Uh, I think there's a lot of shame and stigma with it. And I think that's changing, but uh, overall the, the rose coming, our daughter coming into being was, was a pretty easy process. Pregnancy for me was an unexpected breeze. Um, and so I, I think I entered those early days with a lot of hubris and it, really kind of destroyed me. That's probably one of the biggest, most transformational moments in my life was childbirth and um, the postpartum months, years. Uh, I suffered a really horrible tear during birth. Rose, thankfully, our daughter was extremely healthy, so we didn't have, have that to struggle with. Uh, but I really kind of disappeared. Um, I suffered from postpartum anxiety and depression you know, was convinced that I was worthless and was doing everything wrong and just a lot of tears and sadness and not feeling that immediate connection. Uh, breastfeeding was, you know, it, it's often treated like the most natural thing in the world and it's not. Um, it is incredibly difficult and hard on your body. And for, and for, for some it is, you know, people, people do have those really wonderful, very easy experiences. Um, but for me, navigating, you know, this, this extreme physical pain along with mental health challenges, which has, I've struggled with anxiety and depression um, for a long time, you know, probably since adolescence and a, a very open book about that. And so that definitely came back and then getting past my own head about seeking treatment and starting medication and you know, I remember sitting in the psychiatrist's office and wringing my hands over, you know, whatever small amount might pass through my breast milk. And she made the excellent point that 
the stress hormones that I was producing were actually a lot more harmful than anything that has been well studied um, as a as a helpful treatment for folks suffering from postpartum depression. So started that at that point and sort of started a path towards towards healing. And just a minute, yes. Okay, where was I? <laughs> so the the postpartum experience for me was really hard. I, you know, at, at two months started pelvic floor physical therapy and remember sending, sending an email to work where I mentioned that. And, you know, I really had a very supportive workplace around needing to take, I had to extend my maternity leave and start only half time back because I had therapist appointments and pelvic floor physical therapy, but, you know, emailing just because I'm an open book about very openly about pelvic floor physical therapy and someone's saying like, I can't believe you just wrote that in an email to, you know, X, Y, Z. I was like, well, why can't we talk about it? <laughs> what's, what's wrong with calling it what it is? And so it took me almost a year to fully recover. I had a surgery, you know, our daughter was born in August. I had a surgical procedure in May um, the following year and around the healing of the, the tear site. So I have been really open and vocal with anybody that I know who is entering that stage of their life. And I did have people reach out to me saying like, it's, if it is hard, if you're struggling, it's okay. And that meant the world to me because I felt like it was just me and that everyone else had these magical experiences and I just couldn't cut it. And having other women reach out to me saying how they had struggled, how, what they had found helpful, what they hadn't found helpful, um, and the roads they had been on meant everything to me. So I have really taken that on as active outreach um, among the, the folks that, that I know that are entering, that are going through that. Um, you know, if, if that's not what they're experiencing, then that's great. But if it is, it's so important that we talk about it and are open about it and that there isn't shame around it, um, which I, which has really been changing in recent years, which I'm, I'm grateful for. A lot of what I've learned is the importance of listening to what's going on in your body and in your mind and, and knowing when something isn't right and not doubting yourself. Advocating for yourself is such a hard position to be in, especially with uh, the healthcare system, what it is. There's a lot to navigate, and it's an extreme place of privilege to have health insurance and have those resources. And so a lot of it is really learning to sort of trust your instincts and, and speak up when something just doesn't feel right. That was um, with my tear, you know, I I knew something was wrong, and it, it took not people not believing me, but it, it took a lot of different visits with being told the wrong thing because I was just not seeing the right person at the right time and continuing to call back and, and being seen. And again, to be able to, to take that time to, to go to doctor's appointments is another thing that is, is sadly really a privileged position. So really wanting to be an advocate for self-advocacy and taking advantage of all of the resources that are offered to, to people who have just given birth in Maine, um, you know, there through the hospitals, there are visits that can occur from um, nurses in the state where they actually do home visits 
making sure to ask about pelvic floor physical therapy. It is not normal that you should have pain and incontinence, and um, that's not a thing you have to live with. Uh, it's still still a thing I'm living with, but it's I am, you know, constantly doing that work and, and figuring out a way to to heal my body and also honor what it what it can do and and what has changed, which is significant. Um, on the on the mental health front, that's sort of another same thing around advocating, which can get really hard, especially when you're in a, a depression spiral, but raising your hand for help. And it, it took me a long time. I, I wish I had started antidepressants much earlier postpartum, but it took me a good three months to raise my hand and say, I, I need help and things are not okay. And needing to be able to navigate that system at that point. And then continuing in mental health, you know, beyond that part, you know, fortunately I, I came out and sort of found who I, you know, picked up the pieces of who I had been before and found the pieces that still fit and the pieces that didn't and sort of shaped how I was heading into the future now as a family of three. Um, and that was a really wonderful experience to, to start that new phase of our life together. And still, you know, as the years have gone by, felt like in mental health, just something wasn't right or clicking and there was something I wasn't seeing I couldn't seem to activate into the the therapy that we had been talking about and couldn't prioritize rest for myself and it wasn't until this past summer that I was talking to my therapist and huge shout out to therapy um, other folks on this podcast have done that I if if it is a resource available to you it is such an important thing to go through. I mean, the, the things that I've discovered or learned about myself, even when not in, in any kind of crisis is pretty life-changing. And so I was joking with my therapist about whether grownups can get ADHD. And she said, well, you usually don't develop it, but it could have been there all along. And it was like this, like, like the movie zoom out of seeing all the pieces all finally fit together and something finally makes sense. And so at 37, I was diagnosed with ADHD and that has been transformational. I mean, suddenly understanding the way my brain works, the coping mechanisms I've put in place, you know, in the, in the nineties, no one would think that a young girl had ADHD who was succeeding in school. Right. I mean, it's if you got A's, like well, that's not, that can't be what that is. And there was huge stigma around it. And I've talked to my parents about this, about like how they didn't, they wouldn't have wanted to seek that diagnosis. And my my sister definitely has it as well. Um, and she's going through that process with the healthcare system and getting a diagnosis. You know, you wouldn't want to have that attached to you because of the stigma. And then there were still issues around pre-existing conditions and, you know, you would be diverted into a whole other sort of education path. Um, and so there was not any thinking around that, but, you know, now looking back at how I only, I only took on topics in school that I knew I would succeed in, right. I didn't challenge myself because I couldn't control it and I wouldn't be able to make it through 
that class in a way that kept me sane. And so, you know, anything that involves memorization, I avoided and I had no idea, no idea why. I just thought I had a crap brain. But now understanding instead the way that my brain has worked throughout my whole life and being able to create environments where it's not going to send my nervous system into overdrive and be really aware of that. Um, starting stimulant medication, I think, has a lot of stigma to it as well. And just want to say sort of how for, for folks who have ADHD, the, the incredible calm that it creates. And it seems so counterintuitive, um, but it's like having a radio, static radio in the background and then with the with the right fit for your brain, the right medication, like the noise just goes away and you can suddenly think and you're calm and there's such spaciousness to be able to sort of figure out the day or sit with a task or have patience with your child um, and be able to sort of return to a place of calm. It's been really incredible. And so just, I think the, the wild thing about 30s is a lot of things sort of come home to roost. Like I've been driving myself for a long time into burnout and fatigue and not stopping until my body basically shuts down and that starts to take its toll. Um, and now having the tools that I need, being able to take a look at those habits and the way I have driven forward over the years and the impact that's now having on my body. So what are the changes at this point in my life that I can make so that it's a healthier um, future ahead. One is just on the, on the building a family front. It just came back to me that, you know, what, what are the big considerations that we were grappling with is facing climate change and facing all the struggles that the world is facing right now. Was it responsible to bring a child into the world? And we sat with that for a really long time and ultimately decided that it could be a joyful thing and that we could work to build as a family values around protecting the planet and finding opportunities to create positive change and that that could be a really beautiful thing to do together and with the next generation going forward. And so that was a big part of our deciding to have a child. Um, and now that, that she is in our lives. We, we are also, I want to um, talk a little bit about just deciding to have an only child. Uh, we are sort of a one and done family. We were, once we decided to have kids, it was always a, well, definitely one, but maybe two. Uh, we both have siblings and have loved having, having siblings. But after my postpartum experience, I was truly worried that I would not come back again. And that if it was anything like the first, there was a real risk that I wasn't going to be the partner or the mother or the person that I really wanted to be and, and in some ways needed to be as a, as a presence in their lives, but also just in, in my ability to be happy and <laughs> what is happy, but to be, to have a, a good future and be able to be a family together. So Lots of people decide on numbers of kids for many different reasons. And I think 
there is a growing number of folks who are who are just having one child, and we're excited to sort of figure out what it looks like to build intentional family around that. That was one big thing. And then the other was, oh, just talking a little bit about, you know, career-wise in, in fundraising, it feels like we're at an interesting time where there's increased awareness around, around wealth redistribution. Uh, learning a lot about community-centric fundraising has been really important to me. Um, and I've loved working at, at MOFCA and the openness there to be able to sort of engage in that kind of fundraising, which is really working with donors as as partners and having transparent conversations and talking about resources openly and the the impact that that can have when folks think a little bit differently about inherited wealth and generational wealth and there's a really inspiring movement i think among millennial millennials and younger but that is not exclusively. I mean, I've had lots of conversations with donors in their 60s and above who are who are starting to think this way a lot because of their children and grandchildren, you know, emptying um, private foundation funds so that they can have real impact and uh, increasing grant awards and thinking differently about donor advised funds and, and how folks actually are starting to get more resources out the door instead of that that sitting and accumulating wealth um, is really inspiring to be a part of. And I think there's just general extreme burnout uh, in capitalism. And so it's really tough to need to operate within the system that has been so harmful in order to change the system and uh, try to have there be a different way forward. Working at MOFCA has been really inspiring to first to, to get to know Maine even more. You know, that my other jobs have been traveling outside of the state or, or, um, you know, not always focused on getting the, getting to know the communities in Maine. But with MOFCA and its reach around the state, it's been an amazing opportunity to get to know the different dynamics of various communities. Um, the histories, the the hopes for the future, the challenges that the state is facing, I just feel so much more a part of the community than I ever have before and invested in the future of Maine and its importance and leadership in a lot of ways. I think, you know, growing up, I didn't know a whole lot about Maine and now learning the ways that it has led, I mean, it led the organic movement. It was the it's the oldest um, organic certification organization in the country, and the fact that um, you know this community formed and has been a big part of the farm to table movement and national organic standards. I mean, it's incredible leadership. And so now, with the challenges we face, folks have heard about things like PFAS. You know, Maine again is is being a leader, and it's a really inspiring group to be with, uh, sort of do, doing what we can to, to save what we're able to and protect it for this next generation as, as we think about the folks who have stewarded the land. And, and that comes with partnership with, with indigenous communities. And so recognizing, you know, that it's, we are new stewards and um, trying to sort of get back to partnership and thinking about land ownership differently and rematriation. Um, has just been a really incredible, I feel very grateful to, to be able to be in those conversations. Is there something that you've learned recently that could have helped you earlier in life? 
Yes, I think I, actually a realization that I've come to very recently is what I wish I could go back and tell myself is that my my intrinsic value, my self-value does not lie in external grades. Uh, I think for, especially with ADHD and not knowing that I had it, you know, school was driven by achieving the grade I needed to so that I knew I was doing okay, so that I was being praised and was succeeding. And I would only do the things that I knew I would, as I said, I, I knew I would do well in. And so I really limited myself in what I tried. And there are lots of things that I was passionate about, but didn't know that I could succeed and felt that, you know, my, my worth would be less, my, my inherent worth would be less if I didn't get the grades I thought I should be getting. Um, and seeing the way that that has that, that pattern of sort of holding myself back. And so I'm really grateful now to be in a position to think more about that and sort of recenter where worth lies and what is important, you know, how to practice self-love and how to build up that resource before, before you can help anyone else, you know, um, and how important that is. And now thinking differently about, you know, new ideas or new adventures and not seeing if it doesn't go well as any sort of failure, but, you know, instead a learning experience and, you know, what, what do you come out the other side of it with? Uh, but being more open to, to thinking about um, carrying your self-worth with you instead of relying on external validation. One thing I just wanted to mention as like a, a thread and, you know, now being in Maine where the natural world is so important, you know, my, my happiest memories as a child were, you know, in Illinois, we lived right up against these woods. And so I was, you know, the, the little kid that was running around the woods, making up stories about fairies, looking for fairy circles. And I feel like there is a real part of me that is still that six-year-old kid. And I think a big part of now being in my late thirties, looking ahead is actually honoring that part of me instead of telling it that it's silly or that it needs to grow up or, you know, any part, but really sort of tapping into that childlike wonder in a lot of different ways. And Maine is a really incredible place for that because it's such a beautiful state. There's so much natural beauty here that that is a really, it really resonates with me to be able to be here. And, um, you know, growing up in, in Michigan, in the, in Northwestern Michigan in the summers, you know, being on the side of Lake Michigan while huge storms would come in and your, your birch trees are all rustling and you're going through uh, the different dunes. I mean, it's, that really is, those are some of the most precious memories of my childhood. And so that is another big reason of, loving Maine and, and being here is that it really sort of touches on that sort of magical sensibility. On the, on the mental health front in sort of coming to this realization about ADHD, the thing that kind of led me there was that with increasing career responsibilities, with now being a parent, with the pandemic, like every, all coping mechanisms were crumbling. And 
um, I think that is a big way how I finally saw through the way that I had been white knuckling and really kind of trying to hold everything together for so long, but also just really calling out the trauma of the past three years on parents with young kids with cancellation of childcare, which is understandable based on, and you can probably hear her in the background, but, you know, losing childcare for weeks at a time, needing to try to still work full-time at home and losing sick time and personal time to, to be able to sort of keep things running. Just a minute. There's just, there's a lot of internalized overwhelm, burden, trauma that, that I think parents of, of really young kids are, are carrying and in a lot of ways have felt sort of on the fringes of, of the pandemic because of how long vaccines took and, you know, things would change, but little ones still, still couldn't have any sort of protection. And so it's been, it's been just the most bizarre three years and certainly not the parenting journey that anyone expects as they start. And our daughter was six months when it all started. And so trying to get through that period without for a long time without any childcare because all, all daycares had closed uh, and having a, a human who could not do anything by themselves for, for years still has been really wild. So if you know, if, if anyone out there knows those folks who are parents of really little ones, check in on them because we're, we're, not, we're not okay. That was Megan Metzger, the development director at Mavga and a neurodivergency and postpartum wellness advocate. This month, I ended up dedicating this full episode to these two interviews with Megan and Anna, and I am not ending as I usually do with a featured artist. Don't worry though, because I plan to have a full episode dedicated to young artists in Maine in the near future, so stay tuned. My name is Pepin Middlehauser, and this has been the Next Wave Radio Hour. I want to give a huge thank you to my guests today, Anna Siegel and Megan Metzger. Thank you to the Maine Community Foundation for supporting this program. Our theme music is by Zeke Sakaridis. You can find the archive of this and other episodes at weru.org and wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email nextwaveradio at weru.org. I'd love to hear from you. Next Wave Radio Hour airs on the fourth Thursday of every month at 4 p.m. Until next time, stay safe out there.